This is episode number 192, How Women Should Train, Supplement, and Recover Different from Men with Dr. Stacey Sims. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, sports science, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Estrogen also shifts a lot of the fluid out of your blood into different spaces. So you have a drop in the plasma volume or the watery part of your blood. So you have less blood available for muscle contraction. You have less fluid available for sweating. And you combine that with progesterone that's catabolic, so you can't build muscle or recover very well. It also drives your core temperature up. So with less water available for sweating and an increased core temperature, your time to fatigue and your ability to withstand heat is decreased as compared to the low hormone phase. We also know that when estrogen is elevated, you can't access carbohydrate very well, so you can really only hit into fatty acids. So your ability to hit that top end or high intensity is muted as well. It's crazy to think that it's end of April, and I hope you guys have had an incredible spring so far and that things are going well for you. I'm excited to be on my bike again outside and gearing up for my first races as a mom. And learning how to train as a mom with an infant has been an entirely new adventure. Thanks again to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal. And you can do that on the show notes and you just or you can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts. And even a couple bucks a month makes a massive difference. I have a team that helps me get this show out every single week and make sure that it sounds awesome. And I'm so thankful for Roma, who I hired from episode one to make sure that the audio quality in your ears is super good. And also Tina for helping me get this show uploaded, especially while I have a little baby. It's been really helpful. I'm so glad that this show is bringing you guys value and it's my pleasure and privilege to get to do this podcast and we are coming up any day now on three years. Wow, I can't believe I've been doing this show for that long. It doesn't feel like it, but it's been really awesome. So let's talk about today's guest, Dr. Stacy Sims. She has her PhD and is a leading global expert on female physiology and endurance training. You may be familiar with her popular book that I've personally read several times called Roar. It is a science-based layperson's book explaining the sex differences in training and nutrition and addressing the dogma for women in exercise, nutrition, and health outcomes. Whether you're an athlete, whether you're a coach, whether you're just interested in sports science, I think this book is really fascinating, and I've gone back to it multiple times even as a reference. Stacy says, women are not small men, and we should not be generalizing women when it comes to training, recovery, supplements, and more because our physiology is different from men. Unfortunately, the majority of research is done on men, so it's been hard to decode things like how we should alter training based on where women are in their hormonal cycle and more. Dr. Sims has done an incredible amount of work providing a body of information, courses, and more so that women can be more informed and make better choices for themselves and for their training. So let me tell you about Dr. Sims' background. She's quite an impressive woman. She is currently a senior research scientist at the University of Waikato after returning to academia from a six-year hiatus in the industry. She's an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. 
Prior to being launched into industry, she served as an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist at Stanford University from 2007 to 2012, where she specialized in sex differences of environmental and nutritional considerations for recovery and performance. She basically just specializes in women's health and performance and is the go-to person. If you're not impressed yet, her contributions to the international research environment and the sports nutrition industry has established a new niche in sports nutrition and established her reputation as the expert in sex differences in training, nutrition, and health. As a direct result, she has been named as one of the 50 visionaries of the running industry in 2015, one of the top 40 women changing the paradigm of her field in 2017, one of top four visionaries in the outdoor sport industry 2017, and one of the top four individuals changing the landscape in triathlon nutrition in 2017. So she's making really big waves in her industry. Dr. Sims has been on many podcasts, so if you like this episode, definitely pick up her book and go find her on some other podcasts. But today, we talked about stereotypes about women and women's training, decoding hormone cycles and what they mean for performance, supplements for high hormone phase so that we can perform better at all times of the month, workout recovery for women, women and our pain tolerance, which birth control is best, how to sleep better during high hormone phases, sport nutrition plans for women. We talked about fructose and iron absorption, training adjustments for the onset of puberty. And this has been a really big topic, especially in the running community. We talked about perimenopause and menopause, including body composition, diet, protein needs, why women should not fast or eat low carb diets and why women should continue to train during pregnancy. We got into a lot in this episode and you might even want to listen to it twice. So here we go. Here is Dr. Stacy Sims. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Dr. Sims, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Finally connecting. It's awesome. I know. I was just saying that I've I've read your book actually multiple times and I've used it as a resource and handbook over the years through my training and especially now that I'm pregnant. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it actually was one of the first books I read that actually had a section on pregnancy, which I do want to talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I think it's one of the only books that has pregnancy and menopause. Like the, yeah. the two things that are like still taboo, not to say that everything else in there isn't still in a taboo sense, but those are the two biggies. Yeah. So I want to first start by asking why even in this day and age, people are still so uncomfortable talking about the period or women having a period. Yeah. So it's a combination of things, really. Like if we think about women in sport and the history of sport, it's not just sport, but even medicine where women have been marginalized or thought as being too dainty. And it's been a patriarchal lens and men don't have periods, so they don't understand it. And even if you have a male physician, they understand the, the actual physiological aspects. They still don't understand what, it, what it's like to have one. And so it's been put in this little box. And then women back, because it's been so taboo to talk about being a woman and trying to raise up, it's just stayed in this taboo sense. And so people have kind of been like, hush, hush, it's embarrassing. I don't want to talk about it. And so it's just grown into that. But when you start looking at the empowerment of women, I mean, even in the 60s, when the birth control pill came out, and women had reproductive rights. We still didn't talk about what it was doing, suppressing hormones, suppressing periods, right? So yeah, now it's starting to gain some ground and people are starting to be able to talk about it. But I'd like to have it normalized. That's my goal, to make it normal. 
Yeah. And I also think that there's kind of an unfair commentary around women and their hormones like, oh, women are crazy, like around their period or like, oh, it's because your hormones that you act this way. And I mean, hormones can affect your emotions, but I think that it's it's kind of unfair to make some of those statements. Oh, definitely. It's so stereotypical. Um, uh, I mean, everything gets blamed on that time of the month or, you know, oh, she must be getting close because she's really angry and aggressive. And no one goes, well, maybe she's had low sleep and yelling kids all morning, right? So, but if a guy was angry and aggressive, they would go, oh, he must be getting close to that time of the month. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is very much that stereotype and, and frustration. Yeah. So even like some women listening to this are probably like, yeah, like I know about my period and I know that there's hormones, but I don't really know much about it. So can we kind of go through what happens with your hormones through your entire cycle? Yeah. So we know that if you were to open a textbook and they have a, a, a picture of your menstrual cycle, they'll say it's a 28 day cycle with day one being the first day bleeding and day 28 being the last day of your high hormone phase. So if we look at it, a 28-day cycle, day one to around day 12 or 13 is what we call the follicular phase. So you have low estrogen, low progesterone, and then around day 13, you have ovulation. So right before ovulation, you have a luteinizing hormone surge, a raise in estrogen, then ovulation. Estrogen comes down a little bit and progesterone starts to come up. And then when estrogen and progesterone are elevated, and the last 10 to 11 days of that cycle, that's your high hormone phase. And then they, they drop off significantly and that's what starts bleeding again. And there are some key hormones that aren't talked about so much and that's luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone, which FSH, LH. Uh, so we talk about that when we get into clinical situations like when women lose their periods or if they're approaching perimenopause because these two are really important for stimulating the ovary and developing the egg for being released. And if those mechanics aren't happening, you'll have an anovulatory cycle. Or as you get older and you're not dropping an egg and getting into perimenopause, you can track it by looking at these two hormones. And what about looking at fertility and those two hormones for people who are like even athletes trying to have a baby? Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, not only is a period not talked about, <laughs> But we also don't talk about the fact that a lot of women will have anovulatory cycles. So you won't drop an egg at every cycle. So for female athletes, when you're looking at fertility aspects, you want to see what that LH surge is or that luteinizing hormone surge is. And a lot of female athletes, if they're underfueled or they're in a state of low energy availability, it decreases the LH pulse. So you don't get a big enough surge to stimulate the release of the egg for fertility. It doesn't mean that you're not fertile. It just means we need to do some work on nutrition and stress to allow your endocrine system to, quote, relax enough that this pulse isn't disturbed so that you can get a big enough surge to stimulate the egg to be dropped. And then you have your FSH that encourages the follicle to develop that egg in order for it to actually drop to be fertilized. So those are the two really key ones that athletes should keep track. And then also we know that when you don't have an LH surge and you don't have ovulation, then progesterone becomes insufficient as well. 
So with these different periods or like phases during your cycle, what are the outcomes or the consequences or even the benefits on training and racing? We know that in the low hormone phase, uh, when estrogen and progesterone are, are at their lowest point, their lowest baseline, that women are more like men. So what I mean by that is our core temperature is lower. We can access carbohydrate to hit high intensities. We have more mojo or a better ability to handle fatigue because we don't get as much central nervous system fatigue as quickly. We have more power production because we have faster um, neuromuscular contraction and, and stimulation. But when estrogen starts to come up and progesterone starts to come up, they affect every system in the body. So when we think about the estrogen effects, it crosses the blood-brain barrier easily and hypersensitizes serotonin. So a lot of people are like, well, we want that. We want more serotonin. But you actually don't because too much serotonin or too much serotonin activation makes you feel depressed and fatigued, hmm. um, kind of like having too much tryptophan. And estrogen also shifts a lot of the fluid out of your blood into different spaces. So you have a drop in the plasma volume or the watery part of your blood. So you have less blood available for muscle contraction. You have less fluid available for sweating. And you combine that with progesterone that's catabolic, so you can't build muscle or recover very well. It also drives your core temperature up. So with less water available for sweating and an increased core temperature, your time to fatigue and your ability to withstand heat is decreased as compared to the low hormone phase. We also know that when estrogen is elevated, you can't access carbohydrate very well. So you can really only hit into fatty acids. So your ability to hit that top end or high intensity is muted as well. Now, when I talk about this to a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, that means that my training, my racing is going to suck in the high hormone phase. I'm like, well, no, no. It's about being aware of what these hormones are doing so that you can put steps into place to mitigate them. So when estrogen crosses the blood-brain barrier and hypersensitizes serotonin, if you take some branched-chain amino acids or eat some protein and increase the leucine concentration that's in your blood, leucine is the fastest amino acid to cross a blood-brain barrier and uses the same transport mechanism as estrogen and tryptophan. So what you end up doing is you block the amount of estrogen that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier, and the leucine will help mitigate that central nervous system fatigue. The other aspect is eating more protein so that the catabolic effects of progesterone aren't going to thwart your ability to recover. If you're looking to increase the amount of water that's in your blood, then you do something like miso soup or something the night before. So you have increased fluid as well as sodium to expand the water parts of your blood. And then when you're thinking about estrogen not allowing you to hit the high intensities because you can't access carbohydrate, you're taking a little bit more carbohydrate on board while you're training or racing. Glucose tablets, chomps, dried fruit, Whatever that quick hit of glucose is going to be for you to be able to raise your blood sugar and give you more available carbohydrate. Awesome. I love that you gave some just super actionable things that people can do straight off the bat. Whenever you say take more branched chain amino acids or either take more leucine or increase protein, like is there a guideline of how much you should take? Because I, I can see people just saying like, yeah, I'm just going to pound like tons of these branched chain amino acids or I'm just going to eat a crazy amount of protein. Like what's the ideal amount? What's the idea? So if we're thinking about attenuating central nervous system fatigue, it's around that two to two and a half grams of leucine. So you can either do that in a BCAA 
or you can look at a 20 gram scoop of whey protein powder. So around one and a half to two tablespoons of whey protein. You can do that as well when you're looking at real food. Yogurt's a really good source because it's whey, it's high in leucine, egg whites as well. So there's lots of different, it's not an overload of protein, it's just knowing how to hit that two to two and a half gram. If you're looking for recovery, for women it's higher, you're looking at more of that three to three and a half gram dose of leucine. So you're looking at 30 grams of whey protein, or you're looking at getting a combination of a cup of yogurt and some almonds and and then having a little bit, if you're so inclined for meat, then you're having like turkey or tuna or something to top up all that protein. So if you're conscious of what the leucine concentration is, that's what you're looking for so that you can really get that amino acid action going in the brain and for also your muscle protein synthesis. Are uh, beans and legumes high in leucine as well? So some are and some aren't. And then part of the other issue with using um, beans, legumes, and other plant-based sources is you have the fiber component. And fiber wraps up the protein, makes it harder to extract. I think this is how the whole idea of having to combine different incomplete proteins to get a complete protein came into being. But it's not about that. It's about looking at leucine concentration and seeing a fiber content. We know that peas are good in leucine, but the bioavailability of that leucine is not the same as um, whey protein. People talk about soy and soy being really high in leucine and a great protein source, but we know that it takes 50 grams of soy to get the bioavailability of 25 grams of whey. So it's, it's really looking at that if you are using plant-based sources, knowing how they are processed, are they raw or not, how much fiber is in, involved so that you are actually getting it. So if you're looking at using a supplement, a lot of vegan proteins, you don't want to look at total protein content. You want to look at the amino acid profile because then that is the availability of those amino acids for your body. Yeah, there is for stage races, I've actually found like a leucine powder, which tastes kind of gross, but I started using yeah. that as as recovery. Yeah, like I don't want to eat that regularly, but at a stage race, yeah, like you just put the powder in the water and you just hope that you can get it down. <laughs> yeah, it's so bitter. People are like, can I just use leucine powder? I'm like, oh, good luck with that because it doesn't taste good at all. No. Because it's an acid. It's so bitter. It's an acid. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other things that people can do? just in general to improve their recovery from exercise, like with, I guess, with nutrition in regards to their hormones? So when we look specifically at women, there are two things that you can really do to maximize recovery. And we know that it's a smaller window for women because our fuel utilization is diverse from men. Our return to baseline is shorter than men. And in fact, we need more leucine than men post-exercise because for women, we have to have a certain amount of leucine that hits the brain first to activate the mTOR response in the muscle for muscle protein synthesis. Whereas men, it's just about getting leucine in the muscle. So I can't emphasize enough about that protein post-exercise. And then if we're thinking about, okay, above and beyond the nutrition aspect, we know that cold water immersion works really well for women, but not for men. Hmm. Because there's a sex difference in blood pressure responses post-exercise, where women will vasodilate, so all their blood goes to the periphery, where men will vasoconstrict first, so it goes centrally, and then they'll vasodilate. So to encourage blood flow from the muscle back to the heart to 
get more oxygen, remove the metabolites and that kind of stuff. You want to look at doing some cold water immersion post-exercise. So if you're keeping on top of the protein and looking at cooling the skin to cause that constriction and push the blood back, those are some of the two most actionable ways of enhancing recovery. That's really great to hear that because there's some physiologists I work with and they say ice baths don't work and or cold water immersion doesn't work, but they're probably only looking at research that was done on men. And I actually didn't know that there was a difference in blood flow after a workout between men and women. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, you look at all of this and they're like, it's equivocal or it doesn't work. And you look at the participants, they're either men or there's a few women included, but they've just been included in the wrong phase or there are not enough women to actually tease out a difference. If you look specifically at the few studies that have included women, you really notice that this vasoconstriction dilation response is so, so strong that you can really manipulate it to maximize blood flow centrally and then release it to get more blood flow back to the muscle. Is there availability for grants to do more research on female athletes? Because it, yeah, like you said, it just seems like there's so many studies that are done on men or on men and women and not enough focusing on solely women. So there's been kind of a, a sea change in the past few years, which I'm really excited to see because of the globalization sport really. And a lot of strong female athletes coming out and talking about what it's like to be a woman in sport. There's been more and more funding opportunities coming up. The issue with that is it's all primarily health related. So looking at cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancers, and that kind of stuff. So trying to get a grant from NIH, if you want to do sports specific research, you're most likely going to get turned down. So what we have to do is we have to do a comparison of athletes to clinical population, or we have to look for small sponsor support or in-house grants. The funding for sport research is very minimal and it's still very patriarchal. So trying to get more research done on women, you have to do it through a women's health scope. All in all, it's not a bad thing at all because we know that there's a lot of research out there that is just commonplace that is done on men and disseminated to women in medical scope. And I say that just an example here where I had hip surgery six months ago and then six weeks ago, my husband had hip surgery by the same surgeon. He got the same going home drugs as I did and both of us had the same exact dose. Like my husband is 85 kilos and six foot. I'm 58 kilos and five, six. So we're looking at blood thinners. We're looking at painkillers. We're looking at all of those things. And like, where's the justification in that? Right. So it's a small thing. So if you're pushing that forward in a grant, then you're more often able to get money. And then you can tease it out and being like, okay, well, we want to know more about PCOS. Not only do you want to know clinical aspect, but then how does it affect performance? So there's ways and there's more money coming available, but we still have a long way to go to get specific sport research done in women. Okay. And earlier we were talking about like the perception of fatigue being higher during your high hormone phase. And there's been some really interesting research about mental fatigue and perception of effort in general. And I'm guessing those are probably done on like a mixed uh, sample group. But is the perception of effort different than the fatigue during high hormone phase? Or is it all perception-based and higher estrogen makes you have a higher perception of effort? 
That's a good question, because when we look at some of the psychological research on pain, we know that regardless of menstrual cycle phase, women have a higher pain tolerance and a lower perception of what pain is as compared to men. So if we're talking about rating a perceived effort, across the board, women are going to have a lower perceived effort comparison to men. In the high hormone phase, the fatigue factor overrides the effort. So people, in particular women, if you're trying to push threshold or above threshold, you'll hold it for a bit and then you'll get tired a lot faster. And that pain perception is in combination with fatigue. But then if we look and flip it around, part of it is because then you're working too hard. Because we know that in the high hormone phase, your threshold, especially your functional threshold power, drops by about 10 watts because you can't access those carbohydrates. So that's a lot of stuff that needs to be teased out. But yeah, if you're looking in general, things that affect rating a perceived exertion is higher core temperature, more central nervous system fatigue, less fuel available. And those are all physiological differences that happen in the high hormone phase. And with birth control, I mean, there's lots of different ways to use birth control. Before I got pregnant, I was using the Mirena IUD. And I remember I went to a naturopath and we just did some basic hormone testing because I wanted to just have a baseline while I was using the IUD versus just for my own like personal studies. And I remember he was telling me like, oh, you have the progesterone of an old woman. But I, th- I think it's from the IUD. So like, how do different types of birth controls affect your hormones and your training? And is there an ideal birth control method if you're going to use one? Yeah, there's lots of different HC. So if we look at a typical oral contraceptive pill, we have a monophasic, a biphasic, and a triphasic. So what I mean by that is monophasic, you have three weeks of continuous same concentration of estradiol and progestin, and then a sugar pill week. If you're looking at biphasic, then they vary. It's a low estrogen, elevation of estrogen, lower estrogen, and progesterone rises over the three weeks. Triphasic is similar because it's trying to mimic a normal cycle. But the issue there is we know that the estradiol in in these combination pills exerts around 500 times more, I guess, sensitivity on a cellular level. So your body's always going to perceive as being in a high hormone state. And then the progestin that are in these concentrated or in these combination pills depends on what generation they are. Are they first generation, second, third, fourth? Because they all exert different types of activity because we can't take a bioidentical progesterone because our body doesn't process it. So we have to have a different molecular structure. So we say the hydroxyl group on these are just a little bit different, which is what makes them exert different effects on all these systems. So the baseline of that is if you're on a combined oral contraceptive pill, you're pretty much in an elevated high hormone state all the way through. And we know from a training and an exercise performance state that your VO2 max is decreased, your ability to adapt to high intensity sprint training is diminished and muted. Um, We know that women who are doing resistance training on a combined oral contraceptive pill, they'll increase their muscle mass as compared to women not on pill doing the same kind of training, but that muscle mass is not functional. It's just increasing the cross-sectional area of the fiber, but it's not a neuromuscular effect. So you're not actually increasing your overall strength. You're just increasing your size. When we look at like the implant or an IUD that has a little bit of progestin, 
progestin inhibits uh, luteinizing hormone. So you'll have a dampening of your LH. And you'll also have somewhat of that progestin affecting receptor sites of your own natural progesterone. So your body won't produce as much progesterone. When you're looking at the marina versus the copper IUD, the copper IUD just affects the cervix and the endometrial lining. So it thins the lining out and it changes the mucosal membrane of the cervix to make it inhospitable to sperm. But you still ovulate and you still have your normal estrogen and progesterone. So you can track by using a over-the-counter ovulation predictor kit and getting some blood tests. If you're looking at the marina, the marina for the first about six months that you have had it in, you won't ovulate because the progesterone is still high enough to systemically affect luteinizing hormone and inhibit LH and inhibit ovulation. But after about six months, it tapers down and becomes more of a localized effect. The implant or the implant is the brand name. It's very similar to the Marina. So depending on what you want to use, I always recommend an IUD, either the copper or the Marina, because it's the least systemic effects. I don't ever recommend an oral contraceptive pill unless there is some medical reason that you need to take in estrogen. PCOS, really heavy bleeding, or some other aspect from a health perspective. But if you don't have to use a contraception, then I would say don't, because we know that this getting your period is a sign of a healthy athlete. So if there's ways of, you know, like, I want to use contraception because I don't want to have a kid, that's well justified. But a lot of people are on it because they don't know any different, right? They go in when they're 15 because their periods are irregular or their skin's not that great, their GP puts them on, and then they just stay on it forever. So it's one of those things you got to really ask yourself, what am I doing? Why am I on this? I don't want kids. Sweet. What's the best one for me? IUD? Sure. That's great. Implant? Yeah, that's great too. OCP? Maybe not unless you need estrogen dose. And again, I sit on that fine line between looking from a female athlete performance perspective and keeping a female athlete healthy and also looking at the clinical perspective because I'll get into arguments from a clinical perspective because clinicians are saying, well, that's really irresponsible to tell everyone to go off the pill. Like I'm not saying go off the pill. I'm saying investigate other options if you want to maximize your performance and also not get pregnant. But if you don't have to be on one, then I recommend trying to not be on one. Yeah. And I mean, I think just in general, with just general nutrition and health and things like that, there are things that people do to maximize their performance that might not be healthy and vice versa. So yeah, it is a fine line of like, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, something as simple as the beet juice and nitrate the trend that's been going on for so many years, right? And again, been on, done on men, but one of my PhD students just to put out a study looking specifically at female athletes using beet juice, and it doesn't work. Mm. It's an, it doesn't give you that vasodilatory effect. It doesn't give you any of these perceived efforts that come in men. But people have been using it for years because of a placebo effect, or they've heard that it works. So again, it's really sitting back and going, why am I taking this? Is it appropriate for my body? Is it appropriate for my goals? And putting the ownership back on the individual instead of having someone tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that there's different personality types out there that there are people who are questioners and really want to do their own analytical thinking. And then there's people that just want someone to tell them what to do. And one isn't necessarily better than the other, but it can make things and situations like what you just said a little bit more challenging to figure out. Exactly, exactly. And I've always, of course, I've always been the one who's like, why, 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 why? <laughs> I see my kid too. Why, 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 why? But then I see other members of my family like, okay, I'll do it. I'm like, what? You don't want to know why? <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, yeah. Yeah. So a friend of mine, she was having difficulty with sleep and she basically wasn't sleeping at all. And this is something I've experienced since the beginning of when I got pregnant is just sleep has been really, really difficult. And I never really thought about linking hormones to sleep. And the friend of mine, she's not pregnant, but she went in, had her hormones tested. And there was, I can't remember what it was with her progesterone, but there was something really off. And then they started doing some hormone treatment and then she was able to sleep again. So how do hormones affect our sleep? There's two different aspects. If you have too much estrogen, you'll get that hypersensation or hypersensitivity of serotonin, which will counter melatonin. So you won't be able to get into a deep sleep. If you have too much progesterone in relation to estrogen, because they kind of counter each other, you'll have this elevation in core temperature and increased sympathetic drive. So if you have an increased alertness and an increased core temperature, you're not able to get into a deep sleep. So one of the first things that happens is you have an activation in your parasympathetic drive. So your heart rate drops, your breathing rate drops. And then you also have the activation of your core temperature dropping. Because in a natural sleep cycle, your core temperature drops, it stays low, and then your natural wake cycles when your core temperature starts to come up. So we'll look at the two primary aspects of keeping the balance of estrogen and progesterone because they both affect the brain as well as core temperature in order to sleep. And then we also look and say, okay, well, what are some of the other things that could affect it, right? So for looking at a decrease in melatonin production. That is something that's more of a clinical aspect. So, I mean, I hate to say look for the zebras, but maybe you have to. But in real real life, just try and think about, okay, well, I need to drop my core temperature. And if you're having issues doing that, then go in and get your progesterone checked. Okay. Now, I want to talk about sport nutrition like on race day because that's a question that people ask all the time is, well, what, what should I eat for shorter races or longer races? Like, should I be eating more fat? Should I be eating more like gel? Should I be eating having chews, drink mixes? And it seems like what works for one person might not work for another. And then adding in gender and hormones and how women can take up nutrients during certain parts of their cycle it adds an, another blanket layer of confusion. So yes. w what's a good place to start for women who are thinking, okay, like I'm learning all this stuff about my hormones and my cycle, and I, I want to tweak my sport nutrition plan for race day? Yeah. The first thing to start with is hydration across the board. So we know that thirst sensation and hydration wrecks. Most of the research out there has been done on men. So when we look at women in the high hormone phase, our thirst sensation is muted. And we also need more sodium. So looking at what you're drinking and when you're drinking is the first thing to start with. We also know that if you were to take a man and a woman, regardless of menstrual cycle phase, and they both do the same race, endurance activity race, and they have similar fitness levels, a man will finish with more blood sodium. So they're more effectively dehydrated. So they're hypernatremic. Well, women will finish with either normal blood sodium 
or lower blood sodium. So that is a very key message that is missed in the hydration world because they're like, hey, you need salt tablets, you need to drink this stuff. And we also know that liquid calories is a miss as well. So typical sports drinks that are supplying carbohydrates are primarily maltodextrin, fructose, and glucose, and women can't absorb fructose very well. So that's what I mean. Like the very first thing you need to do is address hydration. What are you drinking? What phase are you in? And you can do a simple hydration test where you go do, you get urine dipsticks, find out what your specific gravity is before you go out during your training ride and then after. And then a week later, use a different method or use a different hydration drink or look to use hydration and different food and do the exact same thing and see what those hydration metrics are. So when you dial in hydration, then you can dial in your food. If you're doing a short, hard race, you know you're not going to be able to eat very well. And if it's under, if it's an hour, hour 15, then you probably don't need to eat. You just got to go in well-fueled and focus on the hydration aspect. If you're getting that 90 minute and above aspect, then you do need to eat. So then it becomes what kind of sport are you doing? What's the intensity? What's the duration? Knowing if you're in the high hormone phase, you need to top up a little bit more with glucose. So it would be eating real food and then on times of lulls, putting in some glucose tablets just to boost blood sugar, doesn't interfere with digestion just to keep you going. Because it's really hard, right, to dial in everything if your baseline is all screwy from all the missed messages of sports nutrition. So I always say, let's start with hydration, dial that in, and then we look specifically at what the race conditions are or what the training conditions are, and then we can dial in the food according to that. And why is it harder for women to absorb fructose? And and is that only during exercise or is that in general? That's in general. We have less of the fructose transport gates. And the easiest way to describe it is per 100 grams of fructose, men can readily absorb 66, but women can only absorb 26. And it's a sex difference in the, the transport mechanism. So if you're thinking about in general that happens, and then an exercise when your intestines doesn't have enough blood flow or oxygen and it's getting hot, and all the transport mechanisms are already downregulated because your intestines are like, holy, what am I doing? I don't have any blood. Then you really want to work with your physiology, right? So you don't want to keep ingesting stuff that's just going to hang out in the gut and give you GI distress. I had no idea. That's that's like a pretty massive difference between the two, the absorption rate. Yeah, yeah. What are some other and, nutrients that are not absorbed very well as females? It depends, really. But another big one that comes up is iron, right? We hear so many female athletes with iron deficiency or low iron, or they'll go into their GP, they'll get their iron test, and they're sitting on the low end of normal. And they're like, wait, I'm still normal, but I'm low, probably low for them. Primarily because estrogen drives inflammation. Oral contraceptive pills definitely drive inflammation. And when you have a systemic inflammation, there's an enzyme called hepcidin that is upregulated. It's a liver enzyme. And when hepcidin is upregulated, it inhibits the gut from absorbing iron. So if you're thinking about high hormone phase or you're on an OC and you're adding training that also increases inflammation, you're not going to be able to absorb iron. So no matter how many iron supplements you take or how much good food you're eating, you're just not going to absorb it. 
So there's ways of like downregulating the hepcidin. So it's something as simple as taking a vitamin D3 supplement after exercise because that counters hepcidin and downregulates it so your body can actually absorb iron from the gut. Men don't have this problem as much because they don't produce as much inflammation and their body isn't as sensitive to inflammation as women. So iron becomes the other one that you really have to look out for. A lot of people say, oh, it's because women have a menstrual cycle and they bleed, but it's more the absorption factor, not the small loss of blood that people have with menstrual cycle. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that vitamin D could help with that. Yeah. Super yeah. interesting. So, yeah, so Peeling's lab out of Australia has been doing a lot of, of work on hepcidin and vitamin D in female athletes. So I think it's really come out in just about the past year and a half, and they're still trying to find optimal dose. They have a range, but right dead in the center seems the least effective dose, so meaning the least amount that you take to have an effective dose. sits around that 1,000 to 2,000 international units of D3. Okay. I want to change gears a little bit, especially in light of some of the conversations in the, from the running community that have been coming out around eating disorders and, and coaching. Like, There's just yeah. been so much. I think it's awesome that all of this is coming to the forefront to raise awareness around this. But what about training during puberty and body composition during puberty? Because there's a lot of females who start their sport, especially endurance sports at a younger age, and then they go through puberty and their body changes. And then like their coaches are men and yeah, it just gets really, really complicated. Yes, it does. And this has kind of been my new passion. I'm going to speak at a conference in a couple of weeks about this, about the onset of puberty and what happens between girls and boys. So we know with the onset of puberty, there's a lot of biomechanical changes that happen with girls as well as body composition. So girls' hips widen, their shoulder girdle widens to accommodate for that wider hip. So their running mechanics, their throwing mechanics, their landing mechanics, all of those are different, but they're never retaught how to do these simple skills. So they start getting slower. And then you combine that with estrogen's effect of putting on more body fat. So they're like, oh, I'm getting slower and I'm putting on body fat. I need to train harder and eat less. So this starts that whole like conversation. And it's a lack of education, especially with male coaches, to understand that with these biomechanical changes, doing specific running drills to reteach how to run is going to increase that speed. And it's not about eating less and training more. It's about eating more and knowing that this is a temporary blip in time while your body's finding its new normal. Because you'll see a lot of girls that start running and then go through puberty or start soccer, go through puberty, and they have that little blip where they get really gangly and put on body fat a couple of years later or even a year and a half later, they're back down to a new normal where their body fat is lower and they've grown into their new body. So understanding that this is a temporary blip in time that might be six months, it might be a year, work on fundamental movements to get those basic mechanics right, the mobility right, the functional strength right, and fueling for the growing body and the sport will help mitigate some of these body composition changes. So it's an education factor that really needs to come out. Because when I read about Mary Kane and I read about all these girls that have gone through this from an early age and they've lost such a promising career, it's just, I'm like, oh, just need people to understand what's going on and educate. So that's, that's my drive now. I mean, I look at, um, a little bit. Well, I should backtrack and say all the research I do is purely a selfish thing. 
first it was to help me, but now it's to help my seven-year-old girl, right? Because I don't want her to experience any of that misogynistic male coach kind of stuff that happens. I want everyone to be educated. And I want to help her through that when she gets to it and her friends through it when it gets to it. Because there's so much to be said when girls are so impressionable and they might really look up to their male coach and now they're, quote, disappointing them by getting slower or getting fatter. And they're trying to do things to impress them again. Having someone understand what's going through that and then help them through that is going to be huge, not only for body image and self-confidence, but also growing through their sport. Yeah, I think the body image thing in particular is a really important conversation that most people we don't know how to have that with girls and girls will look to people that they look up to, whether it be a man or whether it be a woman. And it, it seems like a lot of times the things that they aspire to be or, or what they aspire to look like are kind of what a man would look like. Yeah. And that it's OK to have, you know, more body fat as a female. And you it's like you need more body fat as a female if you want to continue menstruating. Exactly. So one of my colleagues here, a colleague and good friend, Professor Holly Thorpe, she is amazing in the fact that she does all the sociocultural and some of the psychological aspects of female athletes, body image, female athletes in extreme sports. And we've brought our two expertise together to really understand the drive of sport. So we've been working with some of the um, top rugby women some of the top Ironman athletes here to understand their relationship with food and how that translates into sport. And when you get that context of why they will eat something or won't eat something or what the cultural aspect is, depending on how they grew up, and you bring that to light, it really, really helps them understand what fueling for sport means or how these preconceived notions are holding them back. And when you combine those with physiological data of looking at low energy availability and bone density and body composition changes, layering them over is so empowering. It's been amazing to watch the changes in these athletes. So it's a conversation, right? Yeah. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. There's it seems like now and it's super awesome that there are lots of women approaching 40 or in their 40s at the top level. Like my sport is mountain biking, but at the top level, like they're still out there killing it. However, you know, body composition also changes and your metabolism changes as you get a little bit older as well. So like what should people know about that? Because I actually, you know, I'm, I'm in that boat. I'm 36 I'm going to be, you know, starting to get go in that direction. What do I need to know? So in your 40s, you start to have hormone flux where estrogen, progesterone will start to flatline a little bit. And you'll start noticing that your training and, and nutrition isn't quite working for you how it did in your 30s. And this is all prepping for that perimenopause, menopause aspect. So we know that when you start getting into your late 40s, early 50s, and the onset of menopause, you become more sensitive to carbohydrate or more insulin resistant. You lose a little bit of the anabolic stimulus that estrogen has. So you have to rely more on protein dosing and timing as well as exercise stress. So as we go through and we're like, I talked to a couple of friends who are right on the cusp of turning 50 and they're like, well, overnight I became squishy. It's like, well, okay, well probably wasn't overnight, but pretty close because it happened so rapidly. So I always say, well, when you're in your 40s, start doing more high intensity work. 
start doing more heavy resistance training to get that lean mass stimulus to maintain lean mass, to keep that neuromuscular stimulus going so that you don't lose it as rapidly and start really paying attention to protein post-exercise. Get those two habits going so that when you hit perimenopause and into menopause, it's not such a big shock that you're already doing high intensity for that stimulus. You're already getting the protein dosing for that stimulus. And then you start looking at carbohydrates and downgrading the amount of carbohydrate that you're eating from simple carbohydrates and grains and trying to get more carbohydrate from fibrous fruits and veg. And then that helps completely with body comp. Okay. Yeah. And like in terms of more protein, there's just a general guideline for men and women that you need anywhere from like 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram. How much protein do you need as a female? And then also, you know, as you become a perimenopausal or postmenopausal female? Yeah. So because we're on summer break or summer vacation here in New Zealand. So I have the opportunity to sit down and get through some papers. So I went back and revisited the protein guidelines that were written for athletes. And it's in conjunction with Canada and the U.S. and a couple of dietetics associations at the U.S. And so they're laying out all these guidelines for protein and how it works and 20 grams of protein. And if you're resistance trained, it's not so much. that You don't have to time it so well. And you should do dosing of protein in your meals between 20 and 40 grams to maximize protein synthesis. Then I look at the 157 citations for these guidelines. And of those 157 citations, 16 were ones that included women. Of those 16, how many were appropriate to protein? None. Zero. Wow. Of those 16 articles, seven of them were about low energy availability and menstrual cycle dysfunction. Two were on obese women trying to lose weight. And one was on untrained resistance women. So I'm like, well, how can you skew and look and say, yeah, this is appropriate for everyone? And you read through these guidelines and they have like appropriate for him, her, but or appropriate for the aging athlete. But they're not really directing it saying, well, really, all this data is from men. When you dig in and you look at some of the research that's been done on women, there was one that came out early 2019, so early last year, looking specifically at resistance trained women and how much protein they need, because all of the research so far has been saying, well, if you're just doing strength training, protein isn't that important post-exercise, because you're going in fed, and you're not doing that much damage. You can acquire your protein from meals across the day. But when they looked at resistance-trained women, that wasn't the case. Women needed to have that protein post-exercise, even resistance-trained exercise, because of the brain-to-muscle leucine issue that's happening. And we've look and read some of the literature and endurance athletes and the same thing. Women need more protein post-exercise. So if we're looking at premenopausal women, we're looking at more of that 30 gram or that three grams of leucine. And for postmenopause, we know that we need 40 grams post-exercise because that 30 grams doesn't even start that motor process. 20 grams, nothing. So the more you progress in your age, the more protein you need just to keep that stimulus for lean mass and recovery. Yeah, I've also read that like seniors need even more protein. Yeah, and that's one of the hardest things, right? Because your appetite goes down, protein is very satiating. So it's really hard to up that protein content. And a lot of seniors still view it as meat and three veg, right? So they're like, I can't eat that much meat. And they don't think about it as nuts and seeds and nut butters and 
grains having protein or, you know, going vegetarian or looking at dairy or tofu or something like that. So again, it's that education process. So the last two things I want to talk about with the time we have left are weight loss for women, like why women shouldn't go low carb and why fasting is bad. And then the last with the last bit of time, if we have time left, is just talk briefly about pregnancy. Yeah. So with all the buzz of intermittent fasting, low carb, ketogenic and that kind of stuff, again, we look at where did that research originate? And it primarily originated on obese men in the hospital who are either diabetic or needed to lose weight quickly for surgery. And the way lovely media works, they pull this concept over into the fitness world. And you'll have a lot of guys who use it and they lean up and get fit and they go, oh, wow, this is the magic bullet. And then they'll disseminate, disseminate it out to women. And women will have success on it for maybe two to three months. And then they'll start getting really slow and fat and tired and like, what is going on? So when we look specifically at the low carb and the ketogenic, what happens is it perturbs what we call kispeptin. So kispeptin is a neuropeptide that's responsible for stimulating your gonadotropin releasing hormone or the hormone that causes estrogen, progesterone, your whole cycle. So when kispeptin is downregulated, you don't get your menstrual cycle. If you don't get your menstrual cycle, then it's a sign of something's happening with calories we need to conserve. So we know that there's downward regulation of the thyroid, there's downward regulation of your resting metabolic rate because your body gets into this conservation mode. And we think of the original aspects of why this happened in a survival mode. And most of the hunter-gatherer days, there are exceptions. There were some female-only uh, tribes, and that could be why we see differences in today's society. But for most of the time, it was the male of the species that went out to get the food. So in low-calorie or low-carbohydrate times, they lean up, they get fitter, they get faster, they get stronger. So they go fight the beast and bring the calories home. And then the woman was responsible for keeping the tribe going. But kids came first because that's how you reproduce and grow and keep the human race going. So kids got calories first and women were last. So in times of low-carbohydrate, low-fuel, women can serve. They put on body fat, their resting metabolic rate comes down because they get into the survival mode. And you'll see it after about three months. And people feel awful. I see it all the time. People come in and go, I don't understand. I'm trying to follow this ketogenic diet because my husband's doing it or low carb, high fat because my husband's doing it or my partner's doing it. They're leaning up and getting fitter. I'm getting fat and tired. Put some carbohydrate in, especially in and around training. And they start to fly. And they're like, whoa, carbs are magic. I'm like, well, yeah, of course, because your body needs it, especially in and around training. When we look at intermittent fasting, the most of the research out there has been done on rats. And there is Victor Longo out of San Diego that is promoting all of this intermittent fasting stuff. Again, most of his research has come on rats. I haven't seen any clinical studies for athletes or people that exercise. There's definitely some aspects within the clinical realm where intermittent fasting and ketogenic help, like epilepsy, TBI, that kind of stuff. But we're talking about general healthy female athletes. Intermittent fasting um, is very similar to what happens with low carb, where you get this perturbance in kispeptin. And we forget that exercise in itself is a fasted state. So if you look at the longevity data from exercise and compare it to the longevity data that's coming out primarily in rats or in the clinical population on intermittent fasting, it's the same. 
So what we don't know is one, how does the layering effect of continuous and perpetual training affect the effects of intermittent fasting with autophagy and increased telomere length? Do they complement or do they cancel or is exercise better? So when I look at the data that's available right now, and I look at the clinical studies and the rat studies, I'm like, yeah, intermittent fasting is great for people who do not exercise and need to lose some weight and are, you know, need to look at how am I going to do this? Stop eating after dinner, don't eat until breakfast, right? But for female athletes, you're setting yourself up for low energy um, availability, relative energy deficiency in sport, kispeptin disturbance, endocrine dysfunction, resting metabolic rate downturns, thyroid dysfunction, all these clinical aspects that lead us to the amenorrheic broken athlete. Yeah. And another element of that is whenever, I, I don't know if people still do this, but I remember when I lived in Boulder, some of the men I trained with were doing like fasted rides to try and like get themselves to burn more fat or to build more mitochondria. Like, I don't remember the exact reasons why, but does that actually do anything? For women? No, but for men, yes. So women are already reaching their max fatty acid oxidation by the nature of estrogen in the high hormone phase. And then the facet aspect of increasing mitochondria, you just really have to do the low intensity base training of aerobic development to develop the mitochondria. From a fatty acid oxidation standpoint, yeah, men will benefit from doing some fasted training. Women, no, they won't. They increase cortisol, they increase their visceral fat or the fat around your essential organs, and you're not increasing maximum fatty acid oxidation, you've already reached it. There's a lot of research now coming out showing that women who are fed do so much better in performance and adaptation than they do if they're fasted. Okay. And I know we only have like five minutes left and pregnancy is such another massive issue or not even an issue, but just a topic <laughs> yeah. for me, I guess more of an issue because I've been having to address a lot of uh, things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like, why do people think that women are fragile beings while they're pregnant? History, really, right? Because we already know that women are marginalized and put in this delicate flower. Like, I still hear, like, when I was pregnant, oh, you shouldn't run, you'll shake your uterus, you'll shake the baby out. <laughs> and it's all myth, right? Also, the whole idea of keeping your heart rate below 140 beats per minute, it's because they haven't been able to do research on active women because you can't get ethics for that. Because if something happens and you harm the baby, it's just unethical. But from anecdotal or case studies, we know that female athletes who keep training as they used to, to a certain extent during pregnancy, they maintain a healthy weight and their baby actually is born stronger. And I say that because when you look at general population with exercise, as well as female athlete population with exercise during pregnancy, you, yeah, you'll have a little bit of hypoxia to the fetus when you have blood flow diversion. But that hypoxia to the placenta actually increases vascularization because you're going to increase capillaries, you're going to increase blood flow when you have this hypoxic stress. We also know from exercise research on pregnant women that babies who experience this and experience a little bit of nutrient stress during exercise actually have an epigenetic change that will allow them to stay lean through their life. Oh, wow. So it's setting the baby up in a really good position. Not only does it help maternal body weight, maternal nutrition, and blood sugar control and blood pressure if you're not a female athlete, but it also really helps the developing baby. When you look at female athletes, 
if they stop training and become detrained, it's worse than a sedentary woman who doesn't do anything during pregnancy because you're actually going backwards. Your body's so used to having elevated blood volume, metabolic control, and then you start detraining and you get a really huge wham of that detraining effect that becomes really negative. So for like if you're a female athlete and you're used to doing something, you just keep doing it because your body inherently will not let you go anaerobic. You'll become too uncomfortable. You won't be able to hit anaerobic capacity because you can't breathe as heavy. You can't hit those intensities. Your body just won't let you. But don't stop. Just keep doing it. Yeah, I've noticed that I'm able to still do like tempo or sweet spot. But if it comes to like the really higher intensity, yeah, it's just it's just my body just says no. And so people will say, well, you're going to go too hard. But you you actually can't go too hard. Like your body shuts you down. Right. You cannot go too hard. <laughs> that's the beauty, because if you think before medicine, right, you have women who've been giving birth to babies forever. Otherwise, none of us would be here. So it's from running away from the tiger and doing, you know, having to be active to, to survive, dropping babies in the field during work, right? So when people start putting you on this, you're too delicate to do anything, I was like, well, how does the human race survive? Like, don't limit, because the body limits. All that said, if you do have a health condition, of course, you have to pay yeah. attention to doctor's orders. But in general, most of us are pretty healthy and, and do pretty well. And my last question is, I mean, Roar came out. What year did Roar get published? 2016. So it's been about four years. There's been a whole lot of new research that you, I mean, you just talked about a bunch of different new things that I'm hearing for the first time. Like, would you do a follow up to that book? I would love to update the book, but we're writing another one at the moment oh, cool. that the publishers is, is taking precedence. So we're writing one for the perimenopause and menopause woman. But because science is ever evolving, I've developed online courses and stuff to oh. kind of keep in the same vein of the active female athlete and upskilling the science and stuff until we get the okay to update the book. So where can people find that? Because I'm sure women are listening to this saying, I want more. <laughs> Um, yeah, so drstacysims.com gives you an overview of everything that we're doing. And then, of course, social media with Dr. Stacy Sims. We're always putting stuff out, talking about what I'm up to, what courses are coming up, publications that are coming out, presentations, that kind of stuff. Because the more people that are aware, the more people that talk about it, the more it normalizes conversation about all of this. I love it. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you've done and continue to do and for also taking the time to come on this podcast. Oh, thanks. And thanks for having me too, because in this, you are spreading the word and, and continuing the conversation. So thank you. Sure. I hope you guys liked that episode and learned a lot of different things. I did. And if you're a man listening to this episode, I also think that there's a lot of value in here because understanding your female counterparts and also if you're a coach coaching women, I think that there's a lot to be learned. So thanks to Dr. Sims for taking the time to come on our show. Make sure you pick up her book, Roar. Go check out her TED Talk, which is linked in the show notes and her website, drstacysims.com. Hope you guys have an awesome week. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you right back here next week.